0: Please turn your copy of God's Word to the Song of Solomon, chapter 8. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, chapter 8. Our text this morning will be verses 6 and 7. For the sake of context, though, I'll read uh, from verse 1. The Song of Solomon, chapter 8, from verse 1 down to verse 7. Take heed to the reading of God's word. O that thou wert as my brother, that sucked the breasts of my mother! When I should find thee without, I would kiss thee, yea, I should not be despised. I would lead thee, and bring thee into my mother's house, who would instruct me. I would cause thee to drink of spiced wine, of the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand should be under my head, and his right hand should embrace me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that ye stir not up, nor awake my love until he please. Who is this that cometh up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? I raise thee up under the apple tree. There thy mother brought thee forth. There she brought thee forth that bear thee set me as a seal upon thine heart as a seal upon thine arm for love is strong as death jealousy is cruel as the grave the coals thereof are coals of fire which hath a most vehement flame many waters cannot quench love neither can the floods drown it if a man would give all the substance of his house for love it would be utterly contempt Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's word. In human society, there is nothing, there is no closer and intimate relationship than that which we find in marriage. That love that exists between a man and his bride. And God, in his grace, has used the language of marriage to describe his relationship with His redeemed people. We see this throughout the scriptures. We saw it in Psalm 45. We see it clearly taught to us in Ephesians chapter 5, that this mystery of marriage points us to Christ and the church. In Isaiah 54, we read that the Lord, your maker, that Jehovah, your maker is your husband. In Hosea, he says, in Jeremiah, he says, I am married unto you. He uses vivid. Descriptions of his, of his relationship to his people using the language of marriage. And as we come to the Song of Solomon this morning, this book is no different. In this book, we find in the most vivid and impassioned ways a description of the relationship between Christ and his church under the picture of a marriage between a man and his wife. The Song of songs, which is Solomon's, the title given to it in verse, in chapter one, verse one, the song of songs, that is to say the greatest song ever written, just as the king of kings is the greatest of all kings, and the Lord of lords is the greatest of all lords, so this song is the greatest of all songs. Now I ask you a question, what could the subject matter of such a great and wonderful song possibly be? There are some who would say, well, of course, this is the Song of Solomon. It's speaking about Solomon and and one of his 700 wives, or maybe one of his 300 concubines. I submit to you, that cannot be the case. First of all, we know that Solomon marrying those pagan women was an occasion that brought ruin upon not only himself and his own household, but upon the kingdom of Israel. It led to the to, to the Church of Israel to the kingdom of Israel being divided and being stuck in idolatry for generations. Not only that, Solomon's first wife was it was an unlawful marriage. He married the daughter of a pagan king, the daughter of Pharaoh. And likewise all of his other seven hundred wives as well, it was unlawful for him to marry. Deuteronomy seventeen plainly says that the king of Israel shall not take multiple wives. And because of his wives, he, his heart turned away from the Lord, and he served other gods. And allowed idol- he was the first king to allow idolatry to be formally established in God's holy land. Now, this is not to say that Solomon was not a believer. Solomon, of course, was a man of God, but a man of God who was laden with sin like any of us here in this room. And he fell into a backslidden state. But God in his grace, we see, caused Solomon to recover. We see that in the book of Ecclesiastes, I'd say, we'd also see this here in the song of Solomon as well. How ironic is it that this man, this man whose marriages, unlawful marriages, were such a snare to his soul, would have such a beautiful revelation of the marriage between Christ and his church, and what a marriage ought to be. Solomon speaks of his own experience in marriage in Ecclesiastes as one being, uh, as a bitter experience. He speaks of the woman as being a snare unto death. Of course, his pagan wives were. But this is not, this is not, this book does not describe Solomon and any of his unlawful marriages, but rather using Solomon as a type of Christ speaks prophetically, speaks spiritually of the relationship between Christ and his church. This is congruent with the rest of scripture. We know that the prophets of old, according to Peter, they didn't speak according to their own will and their own impulse, but they, but they spake as they were moved by the spirit of Christ in them, speaking of Christ to come. And so what we have in this book is not a man infatuated with the daughter of Pharaoh, but we have a man filled with the Spirit of Christ and looking beyond physical things, looking unto spiritual things, looking unto Christ and his church. And so the Song of Solomon is for us as believers in Christ. It is a description of the love that is between Christ and his church. This song is a duet. There are two speakers in it. There's the bridegroom, Christ, speaking And there's the bride, the church, answering in return. And throughout this book, throughout this book, you see two lovers absolutely enthralled with one another in their affections. This It opens, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. And then throughout the book, they sing each other's praises, as it were. They are absolutely enraptured in one another's love. And again, another reason why this couldn't, this book couldn't be a a description of any human marriage is that in this book, what we see is a husband that is altogether lovely, altogether perfect, as it were. All the problems that arise in this marriage are on the fault of the bride. Now, husbands, you know, that's not the the case in reality, and certainly wasn't the case for Solomon. And so again, this, this bridegroom in this book can be none other than the Lord Jesus Christ and throughout this book throughout this book uh, the, the the bridegroom speaks of his love towards his bride speaks of her beauty says in fact that there's no spot there's no blemish in you and the and 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 the the, the bride speaks back looks into the loveliness of Christ says he is altogether lovely She enjoys the sweetest of communion, the greatest of intimacy with Christ. At times he withdraws himself, chapter three. And we see the bride going and seeking after Christ. She says, I I, I sought him whom my soul loveth. I sought him, but I found him not. But she perseveres, seeking him. And then when she finally finds him, she says, when I found him, I I grabbed hold of him and I would not let him go. And again, they enjoy their sweet community, their sweet fellowship. They sing one another's praises. The bridegroom Christ is pouring out all of his love and affection towards her. But when we come to chapter five, he comes seeking for his for his bride. And she says, I'm already in my nightgown. I'm already relaxed. I, I'm not even going to get up to open the door but immediately she realizes how she spurned the love of her bridegroom but Christ has again withdrawn himself until she seeks but as we come to this section we have entered into the the, the very last portion of the book in the previous chapter Christ is again speaking speaking sweet nothings as it were unto his unto his bride speaking of all of her beauty and she's just drinking it in uh, until we come to chapter 7 verse 10 and and, and hearing of all all that Christ has to say concerning the beauty of his, of his bride, the church responds and says, I am my beloved's and his desire is toward me. Seeing what affection, what love Christ has towards the church, the church responds and says, and, and realizes that the, that the affection and desire of Christ is towards his church. And, and we ought to stop and meditate upon this for a moment here, friend. Friend, do you realize what the affection of Christ is towards you as a believer. I reckon that oftentimes we tend to think of Christ as just barely tolerating our existence. We are such wretched sinners. We have so much indwelling sin in our hearts. We disobey his commandments in so many different ways. Uh, Yes, he's come and he shed his blood for us. and, And through the shedding of his blood, now our existence is just barely tolerated. But actually what the scripture says is that while we were yet sinners, God demonstrated his his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, yet in our sins, Christ died for the ungodly. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Christ, in his grace, in his mere goodwill, set his love upon his church, upon his elect, while they were yet in their sin, and because of nothing at all within them, he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. What I am trying to say is that even the death of Christ itself is not the reason that Christ loved you, but rather, the reason that Christ died for you is because he already loved you. For no cause other than his mere good pleasure. And what this means, what this means is that the love of Christ towards his people burns as a vehement flame, like our text says. And the church in in hearing this is enraptured in his love and is comforted saying, I am my beloved and his desire is toward me. But as this book describes the Christian life, it, it describes it as an as an oscillation, as ups and downs. Christ is constant; His love burns evermore towards His bride, and there there is an unquenchable love towards uh, towards Christ in the church, in the heart of the believer as well. But you know by experience that we are so. We are so inconsistent. We're so inconstant. At times, we enjoy sweet communion with Christ. We're on fire for the Lord. We desire to, to commune and to fellowship with him. We desire to worship him. But oftentimes, our affections grow cold. We, we, we fall into routines of religious formalism. A- and when Christ would come and seek us out and to enjoy more of his communion and fellowship, we're oftentimes like the bride in chapter 5 and say, well, I'm too comfortable right now. I'm not even going to get up and open the door to let you in. So as we come to our text, the bride reflecting upon the oscillations, the ups and downs of the Christian life is offering up a prayer to her Lord, a prayer for constancy. She's asking him that, that no longer would she be so inconsistent in her walk with the Lord, but that she would be set as a seal upon his heart so that she would be rooted and grounded in his love, so that she would not change day by day, but that she would no longer backslide, but that she would rest in his love, rest in his bosom, and enjoy an everlasting communion with him. Our text this morning, verses 6 and 7, is a petition. We're coming to a section of the Song of Solomon where the bride, the church, is speaking. It is her petition offered up unto the Lord for constancy in communion with Christ. And so as we take up these words, we take it up under this theme that the love between Christ and the church is unquenchable. The love between Christ and the church is unquenchable. And we'll consider that, th- that theme under three headings. First of all, we'll consider the bride's petition. The bride's petition. Secondly, we'll consider the bride's passion. And lastly, the bride's persistence. So take, first of all, the bride's petition. Looking at verse 6, she says, Set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm, for love is strong as death. The bride, having experienced the love of Christ and looked upon herself and seen her own inconstancy, her own inconsistency, desires that she would no longer be tossed to and fro by the waves of her own emotions, that she would be rooted and grounded even upon Christ's own very heart. She says, Set me as a seal upon thine heart this takes us back to that imagery that we find in the book of exodus how how the priest in his gar in his in his priestly garments had the names of the 12 tribes inscribed upon those stones on his breastplate so that when he when he did his priestly office he was to have the heart of he was to have the names of god's people on his heart as he offered up the sacrifices to make atonement for their sins this points us to the heart of christ And this is, is in fact, the reality. When Christ went unto that cross, he had the names of his elect written on his heart. He did so willingly, not by constraint, not because anyone forced him. But he went willingly of his own will so that he might redeem his bride. There's a book aptly titled, From Heaven, he came and sought her. And indeed, that is the case. We read in the scriptures of a man, a man named Jacob, so in love with a woman that he was willing to serve for seven years, serve her father for seven years. And that, that time went by as nothing because of the love wherewith he loved her. That pales in comparison to the love wherewith Christ loves his church, loves you, believer. Christ was willing to come Though he was in the form of God, he was willing to take on him the form of a servant and humble himself and suffer as a man to be beaten and bloodied and spat upon by creatures that he himself made and sustained by the word of his power. Even in that very moment, he was willing to die the death of a cross because of the love that he has for his bride. He was willing to pay such a high bride price because of this unquenchable love that he has towards his bride and the bride the bride seeing what what an amazing beloved it is that she has how he is altogether lovely and yet feeling the pains of her own her own sin that wrestles within her spirit causing her to do those things which she ought not to do desires desires that she would be made constant, constant in her own affection towards her Savior. And she says, set me as a seal upon thine heart. She looks unto her Savior and desires that in his affection toward her, he would always have her upon his heart and deal and act in such a way that demonstrates it. If the heart represents the affection of Christ, then the arm represents his power as a seal upon thine arm. Here, she petitions, she asks that Christ would deal and act, exercise his power in such a way, all with an eye towards remembrance to her, that he... That he would direct all things in his according to his providence for the good of his church. That she would be comforted, comforted to know that although her own heart is changing, her own affections, affections are fleeting at times. That at, that she often backslides, yet nevertheless she is upheld by the arm of her husband, the arm of her lover with, an, with a power and with a love that is never changing. She grounds her petition. She grounds her petition and what's to follow? For love is strong as death. Jealousy is cruel as the grave. The coals thereof are the coals of fire, which hath a most vehement flame. Here we see the bride's Passion. I don't have to prove to you that the love of Christ towards his church is an unquenchable love. It burns as a most vehement flame, or as it is in the original in the Hebrew, actually it says a flame of Jehovah. Which takes us back to that flame in the tabernacle, which was lit by God himself, which was always to be burning day and night. I don't have to prove to you that the love of Christ towards his church burns vehemently. But really, the context here is speaking of the love of the bride towards the bridegroom, the love of the church towards Christ. Now, you might stop and say, how can this be? As a Christian, I I don't really see this unquenchable love in myself. I don't see this fervent love towards Christ. Even you, preacher, you've said that we're in constant, that we're fluctuating, that we're oscillating in the Christian life, and that is true. But at the end of the day, the love that the believer has towards Christ is something that is wrought in them by the Holy Spirit. When that seed of faith is implanted in you, in the work of regeneration, there is something unquenchable, something that can never be entirely extinguished, that is wrought in your soul, so that even your own sin cannot quench it. Do you see that? Even if you're in a backsliding state, when you look upon yourself in the mire of your sin, you'll have a deep longing and you'll long for those times when you had that sweet communion with Christ and you'll say, oh, that I wasn't such a sinner. Oh, that I didn't allow my sin to interrupt my communion with Christ and there'll be something burning, burning inside of you to return, to return unto your Savior, to return unto communion with Him. The fact that you as a Christian can recognize when you are spiritually dry and destitute of any feeling, feeling of communion with Christ is in fact a sign that the love of Christ really is in you. Because if you were dead in your trespasses and sins, you would be none the wiser for the fact that you're so far from Christ. That's why this woman, that's why you are praying this prayer as a believer Desiring to have that communion oh, I've backslidden, I've betrayed him again, but oh that he would set me as a seal upon his heart and upon his arm that he would uphold me because the love that I have for him, even though it's such a a, a, a working I'm a walking contradiction. I have the spirit in me yet I have this indwelling flesh, this indwelling sin. yet this love, this love that grips my soul. This love that's wrought in me because he first loved me, therefore I love him. This love is as strong as death. It's as strong as death, just as death is inescapable. Just as when death lays its grip upon any man, it's got him. And there's no coming back, naturally speaking. So this love, this love that's wrought in the heart of the believer by the Holy Spirit is as strong as as death. And so, when that seed of faith is planted in the soul by the Holy Spirit. As something inextinguishable. Although at times it's weak and feeble. Although at times it waxes and wanes. Yet it always remains it always remains and it cannot be snuffed out. Not by the trials of this world, not through the temptations of Satan, not even from the backslidings that proceed from our own sins. It remains unquenchable. And this, this love being as strong as death, death, is also as cruel as the grave, as it were. As cruel as the grave. We know that the love of Christ, that Christ is a jealous lover. He says, my name is Jealous. Jealous. In fact, the, the Apostle Paul picks up on this language in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, because I have espoused you unto one husband, that is Christ. Paul describes himself as a matchmaker, is as if you will. He's come and he's preached the gospel to the church at Corinth and said, you belong to Christ. So when false teachers would come in and turn you away from Christ, me being an ambassador for Christ, being being the best man, as it were, I'm jealous for for Christ. I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy. And Christ himself will tolerate no competing affections in our lives. When we set up idols, he will come and chasten us until we cast them off and see That he is to be held first of all in our hearts. But again, the, the context, remarkably, is the bride speaking and saying that her jealousy is cruel as the grave, just as her love is strong as death. That is to say that she would, she would have Christ to herself always and at all times, to constantly know, to constantly know that she has the affection of her beloved, to know that indeed he is hers and she is his. This forms the grounding of her petition. She desires, she desires with a a zeal or with a jealousy that she would be in constant communion with Christ Never being out of step with Him. As this love, this love that burns in her soul as, as coals of a vehement flame or a faint, a flame of Jehovah, a flame of the Lord. If you know Christ this morning, if your heart has been turned from darkness unto light, and you've experienced the power of his salvation, if you've been redeemed, if you've seen the ugliness of your sin and recognized all that your sin deserves from the hand of a just God, and you've seen that you rightly deserve God's wrath, and yet despite all of that, Christ died for you when you were yet ungodly. And knowing that you deserved none of that, that inflames a love in Christ towards your soul. As the apostle says, we love him because he first loved us. Perhaps in life you've experienced, you've experienced betrayal in the realm of human love. Someone says they love you and perhaps they do for a time. But that love, we know, is is fickle and fleeting. Perhaps they loved you for your beauty. When that beauty fades, what will happen? Perhaps they love you for your wealth and success. When that's gone, where are they? But the love of God, he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, in loving kindness have I drawn you. That's from Jeremiah 31, verse 3. What that text is saying is that the love of God is an eternal love. It's without beginning and it's without ending. And therefore, it is not grounded upon anything that is in you. A love that's grounded upon anything in you, whether it's beauty, goodness, skill, strength, whatever it might be. It's a conditional love. It's a love that can fade as those good qualities in you fade. But the love of God being grounded upon his own goodness, he loves you simply because he chose in his free will to set his love upon you. That love can never change. And in fact, that love Love is set upon you irrespective of your virtues or your vices. And therefore you can be assured it is a love that does not change. is a love that cannot be quenched. When you experience that kind of love, it stirs up love in your own soul, don't you? There is one. There is one who loves me. In my sin, in all of my ugliness, who redeemed me, who's willing to give his only begotten son for me. To know that that love was set upon you, even though, even though perhaps in your life you've fought so hard, you've done so much, perhaps to earn your father's love, to earn your mother's love, to earn the love of your spouse, to, to do so much. There's so many young women in this world that are doing so much that they can be loved, but there's someone who loves freely. To experience and to be a recipient of that love incites a love towards you, in in you towards God who set that everlasting love upon you. And indeed it is a love that is vehement. A love that burns unquenchable. a, A love that though all the waters and billows of affliction like the Psalms talk about the, the waves of affliction might come upon the believer. The death of a loved one. The death even of children. Suffering, persecution. All these things come upon the believer. And yet that love towards Christ is not quenched. It's because it's because the love that's in the heart of a believer is a reflection. It's an image of the love of God towards them. And so this passionate love that grounds the petition of the bride is a love that persists even through the billows of affliction. Verse seven, many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. Let, let the devil and all of his cohorts come and raise a banner against you. Let all, let all the enemies of Christ in the world Point their finger, laugh and scorn, even put you to death, believer being upheld by the hand of Christ, being set upon his heart as a seal and indwelt by his Holy Spirit. The love of Christ in your soul cannot be extinguished, even through all these things. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. It persists. It persists through all, through all afflictions, persecutions, sufferings, even through death itself, just as the love of Christ towards his bride. We read in the Gospel of Luke, the Lord describing his, his passion in this way. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. That is, the floods of God's wrath were to be poured out upon Christ. The billows and waves of affliction and suffering came upon Christ. And yet all these things could not quench his love towards his bride. And we, being recreated in the image of Christ, have an image of that love created in us and sustained in us, not by our own strength, of course, but by the Holy Spirit that regenerates and sustains us. And by the love of Christ, that constrains us. Paul, the apostle, a man who was persecuted, a man who received stripes, By the whip on his back, a man who was stoned, a man who suffered many things. His own testimony is that the love of Christ constrains us. That I must continue on in this ministry, though it brings me bodily harm, persecution, and even death. Because I'm constrained by the love of Christ. so that the many waters of affliction and persecution cannot quench even this love that Christ has instilled in me. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love, it would be utterly contempt. In other words, if someone were to come, if someone were to come unto Christ, say, and offer him all the kingdoms of this world just in exchange, just in exchange for that love that he has towards his bride. Christ would rather be born in a manger. Christ would rather live the life of a lowly servant and walk in humility. He would utterly despise all the riches of this world so that he could have the object of his affection, his church. So it is with Christ, and so it is for the church as well. That at bottom, at at the end of the day, all the allures of this world, whatever it might be, I'm not saying that you don't stumble and and fall at times, you do. And and in fact, you at times give in to temptation, at times you, you spurn the love of Christ by your sins. That is true. But at the end of the day, if truly you are Christ, that seed of faith, that ember of love in your soul cannot be quenched. And and you will recover. You will turn back. Even like Solomon himself. Who was addicted to the lust of women. Who took hundreds of pagan wives. As you looked back on his life, what did he say? Vanity of vanity. All is vanity. I can have all the, I can have a thousand beautiful women at my disposal and it's all vain and worthless. At the end of the day, nothing compares to the love of Christ. That same God that preserved the faith of Solomon even through decades of backsliding preserves every believer in this room as well. Many waters cannot quench this love. All the allures and entrapments of the world cannot instare, ensnare you to exchange anything for this love. And so we see it. We see it confirmed in this text and throughout the scriptures that the love of, that the love that exists between Christ and the church is an unquenchable love. And if you know Christ this morning, you know that this The experience of the bride in this book describes your own life. A life of oscillation, a life of ups and downs. A life of experiencing the grace and mercy and love of Christ. And yet growing cold and unaffectionate for no good reason. And then being recovered, coming back out of backsliding. And you know this desire that the bride speaks of to be set as a seal upon the heart of Christ, that he would uphold you in his hand and upon his heart. That even through all that you've been through, even as it comes from your own sin and your own backslidings, you desire Christ at the end of the day. Because you are desired by Christ and his spirit dwells in you. I trust that if you're a believer, you know from experience that these words are true. But if this experience is, is foreign to you, if you think only of Christ as a hard master sitting upon a throne with a rod of judgment, issuing out uh, dictations of, of, of commandments and for, and things that he forbids you from, and you don't know this tender affection of Christ, then with Paul, I say, with Paul who said, uh, all of my revelation, all of my learning, in Ephesians 3, he says, I have all of this so that I might, I might convince you that you might understand with all the saints what is the depth and the height and the breadth Of the love of Christ. Paul labors in his gospel preaching for this purpose. That you might understand the depth and the breadth and the height and the length of the love of Christ. And if you haven't tasted of that love. I persuade you this morning. To know that it is the love of Christ. Ultimately that breaks us free from sin. Yes the law convicts of sin and the law brings wrath. And it even instructs us in the ways of righteousness. Righteousness. But what the law commands, it does not give. But what the love of Christ does is it produces an image of itself in us so that the power of sin is broken and we're conformed into the image of Christ so that we no longer are slaves to sin, so that we no longer even walk in slavish fear of the law. But we out of... a genuine love and affection and gratitude towards Christ, we desire to walk in his commandments, not to merit any righteousness before God, but merely to enjoy His the kind of communion that's described in this book and to express our gratitude towards Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ is the ultimate demonstration of divine love. A love that burns as a vehement flame, a love that is unquenchable. Be, be persuaded this morning that the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel doesn't merely speak of a God that tolerates your existence or begrudgingly accepts you in his household, but of a God who loves, whose love towards you is as a fervent flame. In the prophecy of Zephaniah, we read something remarkable. That the Lord, your God, is in the midst of you. He's mighty. He's singing over you. He's resting in his love. Zephaniah 3.17 That's the disposition of Christ towards you, believer. Rejoicing in you. And that's why we have this book. I heard a preacher once say that as a Christian, as a Christian, one of the most difficult things to believe really is that Jesus loves me. Yes, we can affirm that. It's it's something that Sunday school children can say. But to really walk and experientially understand that the love of Christ in this way is set upon you, that you don't have to walk in slavish fear, you don't have to walk in... uh, Thinking that you have a hard master and to know, to know that we have a God who delights in mercy, according to Micah 7. A God that delights in mercy, that even if, even if we are backslidden, He beckons us back unto Himself. And He delights to show mercy to His children. He delights to show mercy because he is so full of love towards us. As Christians, as Christians, we must strive, strive to study the love of Christ, to look into all of its depths, to use this book towards that end, and to to know that we have a God that delights in mercy, that we have a husband a husband whose heart is inflamed with love towards us. And therefore, our Christian lives ought to be marked out by the kind of communion that sets apart, that, that, that marks out a man and his wife deeply in love. As we even come to a day like this, the Lord's Day, how do we look upon it? There's a list of rules that we have to do. Don't do this. Don't go to that place. Or we can look at it as in this way. Our bridegroom, our beloved, calls us unto himself, invites us on a honeymoon, as it were, so that we can bask ourselves in his love. We can hear his voice, as the the bride says in in chapter 2 of Song of Solomon, the voice of my beloved. His words are sweet. When we look at the fourth and all other commandments in this light, we see that really, really they provide for us a way to express our love to Christ, as Christ himself says. He that loves me keeps my commandments. And so we ought to view the Christian life in this way. But at length, at length what our text teaches us again Is that the love of Christ towards us and even our own love towards Christ wrought in us by the Holy Spirit is unquenchable. Even through all the oscillations of the Christian life, even when the billows of affliction, persecution, suffering come upon us in this, in this world, even, even when our own sins cause us, cause us to have interrupted communion with Christ. That love remains unquenchable. And that is because he, he is unchangeable even in his love toward us. And this is all our comfort and this is all our joy. Amen. Let us pray. Our father in heaven, we thank you for sending Jesus Christ, your only begotten son while we were yet sinners, while we were yet without strength, as a demonstration of divine love toward us. We pray, we pray indeed that you would set us as a seal upon your heart and upon your arm. Hold us up in your hand. We feel it in our bones, we feel it in our soul, that we're so inconstant. We're we're so fleeting in our affections, even in our religion. So uphold us, we pray, by your mighty hand, and let indeed the flame of divine love burn even in our own souls that we might constantly, constantly run after Christ. And when we find him, grab hold of him and not let him go. We pray, oh God, that even this very day, we would, exp- that you would kiss us with the kisses of your mouth and that we sitting under the sweetness of your voice might be drawn, allured, allured to walk, walk step in step with you, as you hold our hand, as we look for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.